0: This is a podcast from the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW. For more information, go to www.caldorcentre.unsw.edu.au.
1: Okay, this session is
2: entitled Global Compact's Process, Content and Expectations. And what we have is about an hour and... 15 minutes or so, to have a discussion, much more of a conversation than a series of presentations. So we have three people with us in person. Madeline Garlick is gonna be contributing via Skype. And this is also an opportunity to, we're all waving at you, Madeline. I don't know if you can see us, but.
3: Yes, I'm waving back.
2: Okay. Well, we appreciate your getting up so early this morning. We, we know you're not a morning person, and we appreciate the, uh, the effort you're making. Yes. <laughs> okay, so we have <laughs> Madeline, and in case anything goes wrong with the Skype, we'll have Thomas Albrecht, who's the regional representative for UNHCR here, who will seamlessly transition up to the panel, just just in case. Um, we have three people with us in person, as I mentioned, and, what I'll do is introduce them, then we'll have a conversation among ourselves before opening it up to all of you. So be thinking of your questions now. You either jot them down or hold them in your mind so that we can have take advantage of this time to have to have questions. On my far left, a man with a big smile on his face is David Wilden, who's the first Assistant Secretary of the Immigration and Citizenship Policy Division in the Department of Immigration and Border Protection. He's responsible for policy development and advice for temporary and permanent visas. He's also been following the global compacts very, very closely. Then we'll turn to Jamie Abister. He's with the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade since January 2009. He has over 20 years experience working in the development and humanitarian field, and he's gonna be looking at the global compacts through that humanitarian perspective, while David will be looking at it more from immigration. Madeline has been introduced to you already in case you've forgotten. She's Chief of the Protection Policy and Legal Advice in the Division of International Protection at UNHCR. And then we have Riefa Thomas, who's a PhD candidate and tutor at Macquarie University. He's doing his thesis, I believe, on foreign intervention in Syria, which is undoubtedly a very complicated and dynamic process. Uh, um, he's from Syria, lived in Turkey before coming to Australia. So so welcome to all of you. And maybe to start things off, we'll, we'll have a few questions. Um, and I wonder if, I, if we could begin with you. You've been here all day hearing all these presentations. Is there anything that wasn't said that you think was missing or what were your impressions of the, of the day so
4: far? Um, I think it was great. Can everyone hear me? Yeah, I think it was great and I really liked um, the caution that a lot of speakers expressed about the global compacts and their influence and the managing expectations because that was one thing I was, I was, I was really concerned about. Um, I'm cautiously optimistic about the global compacts as, uh, like many speakers. Um, and I ultimately believe that um, they ca- they do have the potential to to be a good step in the right direction if applied well. Um, however, I do feel that these compacts assumes and expects states and governments to to do something, um, assumes them to 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 be held responsible and to do great when many of them are actually perpetuating. Um, systematic policies and laws against refugees. <laughs> so this is one key thing to keep in mind when managing our expectations. Obviously not all states. Um, also, some of these states, a few of them, are also causing the flaw of refugees in so many countries. So really expecting these states to be, to really help in this regard is not realistic. Um, what I'm, sorry for jumping the gun here, the gun here oh, sure. but. Um, what I'm expecting is that the good states or what let me call them good state the states are doing great um, to protect refugees are will, will continue doing great probably even more um, because of the um, the focus on coordination between between these states um, and Those who are not doing anything I think will continue to do so um, and I think just expecting um, expecting otherwise might be just a bit unrealistic.
2: Do you think that these global compacts will make a difference in the lives of refugees?
4: I think on the long run, in the long run, yes. Um, I really liked the, the emphasis on the multi-stakeholder uh, approach. And what I was thinking about it, although my, some might see it as really states retreating from their duty and responsibilities to protect, but I think, The rationale behind these compacts maybe I'm wrong, is that instead of waiting for states to step in, maybe we should do something else, and um, involving by involving um, um, communities and NGOs to do more. And my hope is when we have more NGOs and communities engaged in these debates, engaged in um, helping refugees, then there will be more awareness, um, more resistance from the people Mm-hmm. who will become more informed about them. And then that will create more resistance towards the government and more pressure to do more. Uh, and, but that is a bit long term. Mm-hmm. And it, uh, it surely doesn't really, uh, doesn't really translate into uh, the ideal situation we we, we, we aiming towards.
2: David, I wonder if we could turn to you and just ask you know, from the perspective of Australian immigration, how will these compacts help you? Or what do you hope to get out of these? Sure.
5: Uh, look, I think one of, the, one of the things Australia brings to the table is we have um, a very mature uh, migration system. We have been doing migration, obviously, for a very, very long time. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's central to who we are. Fifty percent of Australians uh, are either born or have a parent born overseas. Um, they've come here through different mechanisms, through the, the post-World War II, in, in terms of today's generations, post-World War II movements out of Europe. Uh, and more recently through a range of skilled migration, family reunification and refugee programs. Um, We have the obvious benefit of being an island a long way away from anywhere, and we also have the benefit of the wisdom of people who went before us who created a universal visa system. So so the concept of managed migration for us is sort of what we do. What we hope to do through the, the Compacts on the Safe Orderly Movement of People is to help people understand where controls can be beneficial, uh, where controls can be impediments and uh, how you manage that against the tensions of the current global environment with the level of displacement and the level of irregular movement that is occurring. So um, the, the key message for us, I guess, is the two compacts need to progress in their individual lanes.
0: Mm-hmm.
5: Uh, that's, and we've been quite clear through the thematics uh, and the consultations we've had because the worst outcome we could have is if we end up at the end of next year... And we've tried to conflate the two compacts and we end up getting nothing in either of them. And in fact, um, if you like, taking the refugee um, compact backwards in terms of how we currently work. We We have a mature system that we want to build on. And I don't think we want to compromise that by getting caught up in a lot of the other rhetoric that is around the global compact on the safe and orderly movement of people.
2: Yeah, I think that was a theme that came out this morning too, the importance of keeping this distinction between refugees and migrants and the fact that we have two compacts instead of one with two subsets seems to reinforce that. Mm. Jamie, I wonder if you could comment from the perspective of the global compact on refugees and from a humanitarian perspective.
6: Yeah, um, look, Elizabeth, uh, uh, Beth, sorry, thanks. I think the... um,
2: yeah. I'm
6: more positive on this in terms of what it uh, is going to start meaning in terms of changing the way the international community responds to um, refugees and increasing displacement challenge. And to the point where I think there there is already change and, and practical sort of um, shifts on that. And maybe I'll just briefly touch on some of those mm-hmm. that I think are, are developing. But I, th- I think, you know, um, one of the things to sort of keep in mind with this is is the compacts aren't simply um, sitting by themselves. They've also coming as part of the broader agreements around the SDGs. It also comes as part of the broader commitments of Agenda for Humanity with the World Humanitarian Summit that had very strong focuses around greater engagement, participation um, uh, and, and support for humanitarian crises that we're sort of facing today. And so I think in that sort of context, my view of one of the big shifts really with the compacts is looking at how we address the issue of refugee flows and displacement away from simply how we better provide humanitarian assistance to mm-hmm. refugees, but how we're developing a policy and program um, um, implementations that actually treat refugees with um, greater uh, dignity that they themselves are assets, that they themselves can contribute in a very meaningful way to their the the Mm -hmm. challenges they're facing and whatever else and I think the positive thing is that there's already moves around the way um, humanitarian agencies uh, donors like even like Australia we've now moved from in the past making single year commitments just uh, one-off ad hoc commitments to different humanitarian crises to now we have a multi-year 220 million dollar commitment to the crisis in Syria Um, the focus on that is to not just address uh, life-saving health, education, food security needs, but also education mm-hmm. in emergencies, um, looking at how we can open up opportunities for employment and livelihoods for, for, for refugees. Because we know that you know, we've been putting interventions in place that have been treating the situation as if, as if, as if it's a day-by-day day or a week-by-week week situation, mm-hmm. but most refugees sadly live in... Um, uh, a displaced uh, for, for decades. and it's important that we then reflect that longer term scenario and how we develop um, the policies and programs we address it. And the final point I sort of mentioned on this is, I think the need for us to break away from this idea that responding to refugees needs is simply left to humanitarian agencies and donors to, international donors to fund. It's about opening up the role and the increasing opportunities that that the private sector can play on this, that um, you know, uh, financing institutions and banks, including the World Bank, are, are looking at ways where they can be looking at, at economic opportunities where um, refugee and displacement uh, d- d- issues occur. And so I think the point is that we ne- the, the compacts open up a discussion, a dialogue, that is bringing in more players, a broader discussion about how we address displacement refugees than I think we've had uh, in the past.
2: It kind of echoes what you were talking about—the multi-stakeholder nature of the engagement. Madeline, it looks like you're you're awake. Um, if I could ask you about responsibility sharing, you know, which was you know a key point of, of the you know the, the original formulation of the negotiations in New York. Um, you know, where do you see responsibility sharing coming in the Global Compact on Refugees?
3: Thank you, Beth, um, thank everybody being ready to uh, update my input through this in perfect means. Can you hear me? We're
2: breaking up a little bit. Um, we've got okay. our technician oh. looking at it,
3: though. Okay.
2: okay hang on just one oh.
3: second. Oh. Yep. That's not a problem. Um, <laughs> uh, yes, on responsibility sharing. Yes, as you say, indeed, of course, it's um, a critical element of the New York Declaration, and I think, really, in many ways, we have to see it as the Raison d'etre of the whole process. And therefore, I think everyone involved in this needs to really see this as a crucial goal. We have a responsibility to realise more effectively than has been the case in practice. Um, I think what really has become apparent through the thematic discussions we've had so far this year uh, is that there is a sense that really host states including both parties and non-parties to the 1951 convention, can't be sure to be able to, uh, or be expected to continue receiving and accommodating host states if they're not given more concrete and reliable signs of commitment to support them in future. So I think that the critical nature of this element has become extremely clear over How's that going audio-wise, can you hear me?
2: Yeah, much better, thanks, Yeah.
3: But, okay.
2: So, I mean, I think what's
3: encouraging is that in the course of the thematic discussions and particularly the one that was held in July, which focused specifically on the theme, responsibility sharing where we had the benefit of your presence, Beth. Um, we had a few ideas there identified that we're very keen to develop further. One is a standing global response group to facilitate all uh, early coordination at the outset of the displacement situation would bring together some of the many stakeholders that other speakers just referred to. Secondly, an emergency funding mechanism that will involve multi-year approaches and more innovative arrangements that should aim to provide more swift funding on a flexible basis, um, less earmarking, marking, and then potentially more ability to adjust to changes in any given emergency context. But I think it's crucial to remember then, thirdly, that we also need in looking at responsibility sharing arrangements to ensure we go beyond just looking at funds. Um, We need to ensure more political support to host countries in their efforts to respond to this technical and logistical assistance that can be mobilised to help. Capacity building to put in place more robust systems in a lot of host countries in the longer term. Um, as well as exchanges of experience and good practice. I think crucially too, and this is perhaps important for for your discussion as well, we need to acknowledge that there is an urgent need to expand timely opportunities for resettlement. We've always had a drop in the number of available places uh, and we're going to need to find ways to step up and fill that gap, um, as well as a focus on trying to ensure that we are working more effectively on solutions for refugees from the very outset but that these countries aren't left dealing with protracted situations. And if I can perhaps be a little bit controversial here, um, I think the reality is that even though this may be a time when there's lots of states who are very cautious about doing so, I think it's a time where really all countries need to be looking at stepping up and doing a bit more um, than they've done in the past, even though in many cases this may be uh, a time when they would be politically inclined to do less.
2: Okay. And in terms of the global compact itself, is there still thinking about having a preamble that talks about responsibility sharing, or will it just be the plan of action?
3: Oh, well, we're certainly going to be looking at incorporating all of the elements that are in Annex 1 of uh, the New York Declaration already, with important statements of principle and uh, existing obligations. As regards the preamble, we're, we're open to uh, inputs there as well, I in the process of the thematic discussions that's going on so far is looking to take on board the views of many stakeholders. So I think, you know, indeed, if it's felt by this gathering and by others who are giving input to the process that that will contribute, uh, helping, giving us uh, uh, a text that's well grounded in principle and referring to other instruments, then that's certainly something, of course, we'll want to we'll want to think about.
2: Great. I encourage then for some of you drafters to be thinking about language that we could feed into Madeline to help in this process. I wonder, Rifai, if we could. Oh, go ahead, Madeline. Okay. Okay. Rifai, I I wonder if we could ask you um, to think about or comment on the role of refugees, migrants, their participation in these processes, which have been fairly minimal so far. I mean, is there a a role or a contribution which people themselves could make to the development of these global compacts?
4: Yeah, indeed. Um, I think in the GRC there is uh, there is a mention um, about the involvement of, of refugees in the dialogue, but I don't. I think it, it's not really developed well, and I, there, there aren't really mechanisms yeah. to ensure their participation. And I think the issue of involvement is also a bit tricky because you can have someone speak. Um, and participate, but you don't really listen. You don't have the willingness to listen. Um, and I, so I think we need to really m- go move beyond just like having them participate, but also really enabling them as well to be an eff- to be effective advocates for refugee rights. Uh, to allow them, provide spaces for them to um, negotiate, um, and also give them space at the negotiating table when so- trying to come up with solutions. Um, and I think this is a bit tricky because it effectively means relinquishing power, giving them more power with their like, leadership roles, agency. And that's, um, that's quite hard to do, I think, because a lot of uh, governments and even people ref- um, view refugees as a threat, as um, um, sometimes latent threats. So giving them that leadership, these leadership roles or um, agency is a bit... Um, You know, they're quite hesitant to do so. Um, And the other thing, I guess, when we're really uh, involving or um, bringing refugees uh, to the negotiating table is to recognise their diversity. Um, No two refugees are the same. They're so diverse in their opinions and their views, what they need, Um, and also moving beyond the misconceptions surrounding refugees, which we're all, um, I'm, I'm sure, we're all aware of.
2: I might just add a little example from the United States since there's so much bad news from the U.S. here's a good example Um, U.S. has started something called the Refugee Congress by which refugees in each state are electing or some consultative process to name one representative per state so once a year the 50 of them come together and they spend time talking to members of Congress which is much more effective frankly than professional advocates when people can say this is my story and in the the elections we recently had at the local level in the U.S., two members of refugee congress were elected to state political office. You know, they've been very active, effective advocates in their communities and writing op-eds and encouraging and mobilizing. But it's a, it's a good model, I think, whereby refugees themselves are selecting people to represent them, even if they're from different nationalities. But going back to the global... Oh, Madeline, yes, I saw your hand.
3: Yes, very quick, if I could come in on this Beth. I mean, I think it's a really important, in fact, a crucial point. And I should say too that you know UNHCR has been rightly called to account for not providing more effective ways in the past for refugees to have their say. It's something we talk about a lot, but we need to do better at actually uh, enabling it and making it possible. One of the things we've sought to do through the thematic discussions this year is to ensure that refugee organizations are taking part and are speaking in each of those we've held so far. There's a group of refugee youth delegates who were, um, who came together in the refugee youth consultations last year who've been very vocal, um, and they've been quite inspiring, including one, at least one or two from Australia. But I would also in that regard say that we're actively looking for more ways to seek refugees input through the process of work towards the global compact on refugees. Um, and indeed, one thing I'd, I'd like to encourage all participants, but uh, perhaps notably refugees and, and refugee organisations, to think about is providing us written input um, through the, the website, which has a specific facility for uploading any submissions or contributions in writing that, uh, that, that experts or stakeholders would like to provide to UNHCR. So please let me just take this opportunity to plug that and to. Um, uh, encourage you to, to uh, see if any refugee organisations who are interested should be aware that that opportunity exists. I've actually sent the link to Kelly Yule at the centre, so she should be able to disseminate that to participate if people don't already have it.
2: Good. Thank you very much for that invitation again to participate. I want to turn to our two Australian um, commentators here and ask for your, your predictions on what's going to happen with these. Do you see particular issues that might be contentious or do you think things will just slide through? Uh, you know, how, how do you think it's going to go These course of the next year?
5: Yeah, I'll go first. That's fine. Um, <laughs> I, I think there's a number of threshold points that are going to play out in the next three to four months. will Largely inform where this lands. Um, the starting point for us, of course, is we remain very positive on what we can achieve through both of the compacts. Um, they started at different places, uh, and there's, I know there's some frustration that they're moving at different speeds, but I think we just have to recognise, you know, when we have, if you like, uh, the, the more mature side of the refugee uh, compact because of its starting point. The global compact on the movement of people is a, is a completely different challenge with a bunch of highly competing interests. So navigating that forward is going to be challenging. Um, we have uh, an international environment that is um, not without challenge at the moment in and of itself, uh, and that comes down to um, various people in positions of power all around the world um, who dictate, you know, government policy uh, and shifts like... and uh, The US okay. is one, clearly, where we had, a, on the refugee side, a 50% reduction in the program, 50% plus, um, on the global movement of people. Um, we, we haven't got strong steer yet um, from how the US uh, is going to play. So we, we're sort of moving towards negotiation stage with a number of unanswered questions. Now, hopefully, we'll, most of us, will, many of us will be in Mexico um, in a couple of weeks where we will hopefully break the back of some of those core issues because the tension of sovereign rights and the movement of people against uh, you know the, the human rights of people on the move? How do you deal with the complexities of sending countries and diasporas uh, who are being, uh, in some environments, being treated very well and lawfully, and in others, um, uh, certainly not? Um, working through those issues in the early stage, we'll be able to call that come negotiations in February, whether we're going to have a compact that will be highly aspirational and provide a solid foundation going forward or whether we will have something that uh, seeks, if, to be blunt, too many compromises and becomes largely unworkable.
2: And you think we'll know that after Mexico?
5: I think we'll have a much, we'll have a better feel for where the stepping off point is. And once we know the stepping off point, I think we'll then, we'll then know what the negotiating strategies have to be. Okay. Australia will clearly be working very hard on both compacts, and I'll get uh, John, you'll obviously talk on the refugee one shortly, to make sure that we have realistic, pragmatic, implementable, outcomes. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think the worst outcome on the safe and orderly movement is that we say, yes, we must treat everyone well. Um, We sort of know that already. How do we actually construct outcomes that go to responsibilities of governments, uh, responsibilities of non-state actors, um, how we work at a sort of national, regional and global level because all of those have different tensions uh, within them. If we can work through a narrative that says from the matter of principle what is important down to those practical, realistic things that governments can sign up to and then implement, and we need, obviously, a global infrastructure to do that, I think that would be the greatest win we could have. Oh,
2: that's great. OK. Jamie, what about you?
6: Um, yeah, I mean, the, the two things I'd probably touch on um, is, I think, on the Refugee Compact uh, particularly, but i but both of them, but I think is the need to sort of be able to translate very quickly what is being um, articulated in in the compacting commitments into reality and practice on the ground. And I think the pilot initiatives that are being taken forward in different countries, I think, are, are critical that there's, um, there's... ..that they progress and some of the approaches and commitments that are being put in place are, are translating. And I think the situation in uh, in, in, in Uganda with, you know, um, you, know, uh, you know, over 2 million South Sudanese fleeing into Uganda, the approach the, the Ugandan government's taken in terms of trying to look at allocating land and support, but also how I think the, 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 the issue and the Australian government's committed funds to the, to the pilot, but how increasingly the international community can acknowledge how it's supporting the Ugandan government to address that, how host communities are being supported as part of that, that mm-hmm. situation. And how refugees, as I mentioned earlier, are being seen as more than simply victims, but also assets to the, um, and part of the, the solution. So I think that translation of what these compacts are, are saying, but really what it starts translating to, and I'm not saying that it won't have lots of challenges, but if if that can't be moving fairly quickly, then I think you'll get um, the risk of things winding back and, and, and countries of first asylum saying, well, you know, we've we've gone ahead with goodwill with taking these approaches, but we don't see the burden sharing sort of coming across. And the second thing, I think, which is, you know, I think um, David sort of touched on it a little bit, but, look, I think, you know, it's not, telling, not saying anything um, surprising that, you know, the multilateral system at the moment is under a fair bit of pressure. There's a lot of, um, uh, a lot of uh, different dynamics that are pushing on it, and the risk is that there's a range of states who want to use the compacts and, 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 play, and use politics in the compacts to address or deal with uh, other issues or interests that they have. And I think that, that's probably an issue, particularly in the migration compact, that I think, we, you know, as, as, as David said, we'll know more following Mexico, just how much that's going to be a, a, a real constraint or potentially a barrier to come into practical commitments.
2: Okay, I'm going to ask Madeline a question, and then I'm going to turn it open, so be thinking about your questions. Um, Madeline, we, we saw your presentation earlier this morning, and then following that, there was a session, and, and we had some presentations on gender. And a question came up for you at that time, and that concerned the statement of looking for um, one million resettlement places, of uh, and the extent to which there's a gender breakdown in terms of resettlement or alternative pathways—have you given thought to how gender might figure into that?
3: Um, well, certainly. I mean, I think uh, it's crucial, and one of the new and important elements that we're uh, uh, fortunate enough to have in the new Declaration's framework—that gender is a is a crucial feature. There are references throughout to ensuring that. Uh, uh, Women and girls and people of diverse gender are given opportunities to realise their rights and practise in more cases. As regards resettlement, one of UNHCR's priorities is always to seek to ensure that people with specific vulnerabilities, which in some cases includes women or uh, single parent headed households, um, are given opportunities to ensure that they can find solutions in more cases. And indeed the objective of trying to seek to uh, create one million resettlement places does aim to ensure that a far greater number of people who for various reasons, which in some cases may include gender, are not able to find solutions otherwise, have an opportunity to do so th- through concrete and proactive steps that other countries in addition, apart from first host trees, are ready to take through committing resettlement places So we're hoping that there's going to be a a broad support and interest on the part of states to do that. Um, We note that there has been an increase in resettlement countries over the years, including a number that are also looking to uh, resettle people on the grounds that they can't find protection either due to gender factors or because that they are are at risk because of gender-related elements. So we hope that's going to be a crucial part of it. I think what's essential, though, too, you know, this is to recall that we're also not just seeing uh, uh, gender as a feature through which people may have specific needs. On the contrary, what we want to try to do is ensure that we have got scope for uh, people of all uh, profiles and genders to realise their agency and to be empowered. Um, we've just heard Janie referring to the importance of ensuring that refugees are not just seen as people who are, are subject to their fate, and we couldn't agree more with of that. And I think one of the ways that we think that our discussions are going to help us to move forward is by recognising the contributions that refugees do already make and can be uh, uh, in a position to make if they're given the opportunities to do so.
2: Thank you. We'll open it up now for questions. If you'll raise your hand, I think we've got a microphone runner over here. And you can address a specific member of the panel or in general.
7: Thank you, yeah, Paul Power from the Refugee Council of Australia. Um, yeah, um, earlier Beth, when you spoke, you talked. You spoke about having, um, you know, a small number of key points, uh, you know, for any organisation to raise. And from the Refugee Council of Australia's point of view, we've looked at the discussion about the Global Compact on Refugees and come to the conclusion that the the two key things for that we feel where there can be potential progress. Um, the first relates to. Countries taking their commitments under the New York Declaration seriously and developing their own program of action um, To implement it Uh, because if states and civil society in those states and I would include definitely include civil society as well If they actually don't take the responsibility seriously, then nothing's going to happen and as you know And from Australia's point of view it can't be about you know what should be happening in Uganda and Lebanon and Turkey and uh, Bangladesh, but it's it's also about Implementing policies that are of, uh, of the same quality that we would like to see—you um, know—that that are just and, and sustainable policies that we would, uh, of the kind we'd like to see implemented elsewhere in the world. But the second point, which um, is probably you know is fundamentally more important, um, relates to the engagement of people who are refugees in the development of solutions. Um, And so one thing that we're doing, just to to make people aware and then I'll ask a a question, um, is that we've been working, uh, in June this year we co-hosted a side meeting at the time of the UNHCR NGO consultations on um, self-representation by refugee-led organisations working with um, two networks in Australia, refugee-led networks and some international organisations and out of that um, the idea was put forward by the Australian National Committee on Refugee Women that we should work towards a a loose international network of refugee-led organisations. So we're now working with them and with uh, the network of Refugee Voices which started by some Syrian refugees in Europe and it's actually spreading Um, and you know one of the things that we are working towards is is a, um, a gathering in June, just prior to the UNHCR NGO consultations, for as many people as we can assemble in one spot, um, for the first gathering, hopefully of a uh, of an international um, network, you know. And we recognise, of course, that's limited, but you know, it's a significant improvement on what it, what exists up to this point. So, uh, yeah, and I, I suppose I'm interested in in um, you know, once there is. A, 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 Representative refugee-led organisations to work with. What are the potentials for active engagement in durable solutions? And one, yeah, and I'm interested in, in people's thoughts about this. One thing that I would actually like to talk to Jamie and, and David, and they're, I think they are aware of it to some extent, um, is that uh, diasporas from Myanmar in Australia, not from not Rohingya, unfortunately, but from other ethnicities, are interested in advancing the discussion about how we move towards. Sustainable return at some stage in the future, and they've got clear ideas, got clear concerns, but they've also got ideas about how that could change. And it, um, so it would be great to actually have a serious dialogue with the Australian government, with the diaspora in Australia, and and also with refugee groups in Thailand and Malaysia, about what um, you know future repatriation might look like. So I'm interested as to whether or not that that sort of idea is sustainable, but also other ways in which we could actually practically implement the engagement of refugee organizations in durable solutions.
2: It sounds like a good first step is setting up this international network. You know, one of the problems, I think, when it comes to refugee participation is knowing you know, which groups are representative. And anytime you have an outsider designate, there's always a problem. So having these refugee-led organizations organized, I think, is a good first step. But do others of you have uh, ideas on how refugees themselves could be involved in finding solutions?
5: I'm
6: I'm happy to kick off and then uh, David uh, and and others may want to come in. But um, Firstly, look, I think, one, just to acknowledge the work that the the Refugee Council does around enhancing a voice from uh, refugee communities, I think, is really important because, as we know, in terms of shaping policy and program approaches, uh, the most effective uh, approaches are where there's um, that perspective and that voice um, being heard and, and directly um, uh, shaping how um, governments, donors, agencies, communities uh, respond. Um, just in terms of the, the issue, well, I mean, look, we, we've talked a bit on this, Paul, I'd just say yes, I think we're, we're certainly up for it. Two things I'd just bring to people's attention, you know, I think people are aware that uh, yesterday the Prime Minister announced the, uh, launched the, uh, the, the mm-hmm. Foreign Policy White Paper, Uh, I'd encourage people to read it. Um, One of the things that it has a commitment on is increasing our humanitarian assistance and funding to half a billion dollars by 1920 and um, looking at how we do take a more longer-term considered approach to refugee and displacement issues globally. And uh, it gives some examples, including around the compacts uh, around that, Um, which, you know, for a document which is trying to tackle Australia and the world, uh, it's, it's, it's good to have that reflected in it. Um, and the other point to mention is it does also talk about the the role, as a fact sheet specifically linked to it. Paul, I'd encourage you to have a look around engaging diaspora in Australia's foreign policy and our development programme and part of it looks at how that um, engagement with diaspora communities can occur on a range of levels, but one of them potentially being as well around the... The, the, the challenges and issues of returns um, in, in places like on the Tibera border and, and elsewhere, um, et cetera. So, look, I think none of these are easy solutions, um, but the the issue about how we hear and and utilise the experience and expertise of diaspora communities here, I think is something I can speak from my side and the Australian government, we'd be more than happy to look at how we, we take that uh, forward. And uh, you shared some ideas, Paul, I'm happy to come back to you on it. Uh, and I
5: might be- just me- add, um, uh, Uh, again, acknowledging the great work uh, of the Refugee Council. And and a a live example is uh, we have a a regular forum called the NGO Dialogue and uh, a week or so ago, I think about a week, um, we had our six-monthly meeting and for the first time we had um, former former refugees who'd come uh, as a membership of that group and that was through the advocacy of Paul and I do want to acknowledge that because I think it adds, um, you know, certain... uh, Element of honesty to the debate that perhaps we don't see otherwise. You know, when we meet together as representatives of organisations, we're very good at talking about matters of principle and, and law and and policy. Uh, but certainly, uh, you know, I, I copped one right on the the chin from uh, one of the delegates uh, on the issue of women and children, and both from their journey and their settlement. Um, and I was the knockout blow this morning, uh, obviously from Eileen and, uh, and Linda as well, which just reinforced that. So you start to see the we, we're starting to see, and I think it is partly driven by, obviously, the, uh, the good work of individuals, but also since the Syrian-Iraq crisis and the call-out through the compacts, we're starting to see um, a whole new level of debate at, at the level of government. Um, be it uh, regional or global, through f- formal and informal mechanisms, across a very broad spectrum of issues. A very important voice in that is going to be the, the refugees themselves. So how we can further move beyond, you know, the, the, the start points of things like you know, NGO dialogues where we hear the uh, individual voices, how we formalise that uh, is going to be very important. I think Paul also raises the issue of our region. One of the things we want to see through both of the compacts is and I mentioned a global national regional earlier, is solutions that work in our region. Um, we often go to forums and hear around, you know, look, we're not, we're not going to focus on your region because it's you know the problems are so big in Africa or, or so big in the Middle East. We certainly don't um, shy away from the challenges in those two particular environments. But we, do, we still do have regional issues that need to be resolved and Australia has to be a strong part of those resolutions. Um, We've seen some really good work from the uh, CPD recently with the dual-track dialogue, which is bringing different parts of the sector from different countries in this region together in a much more joined-up way than we've seen before. So I think, you know, the green shoots, if you want to use that analogy, are are coming up everywhere. Our challenge is how do we continue to let them grow and then um, leverage off them through the compact process and post the compact process for those real pragmatic implementable solutions.
2: Okay, Thanks. Uh, Other questions? So, here, here, yep.
8: Carolina Gotardo, Jesuit Refugee Service. Um, I just want to elaborate a bit on the morning panel and what um, Eileen and Linda presented on, uh, and that you started to talk about, Madeline, and now uh, David as well, in terms of women and girls. Um, and their involvement in both compacts but basically it is this change in terms of the vision from vulnerability into agency and how they are, how women and girls are perceived um, and also the the issue of minorities that certainly were not and the issue of of always being kind of framed in the context of women and children uh, Mm -hmm. together. in what, what, I, what I have seen in the thematic consultations on the GCM and in regional consultations is that despite the fact that UNHCR obviously is doing efforts on this area, which is fantastic, and there are other actors such as UN Women and Luis Arbour, uh, the SRSG, really speaking up on this issue, for member states the debate continues being a bit tokenistic in terms of saying women and girls and in terms of, of um, seeing them under that lens of vulnerability. So I was wondering whether the Australia, got, whether Australia could, take a, could see an opportunity here uh, in terms of trying to influence in negotiations other member states uh, in, in advancing. Uh, in ensuring that this is not tokenistic and that is not perceived from the point of view of vulnerability, but from the, from the point of view of agency and real participation in decisions that affect the lives of, of women and girls, both refugees, asylum seekers, and migrants.
2: Anyone like to take that up?
6: I'm, I'm happy to tackle, but Madeline may may want to as well. But m- maybe just to say quickly from the, from the government side: Look, I think it, it's a it's a very fair and very real point. I mean, you take the current Rohingya crisis. We know, you know, a disproportionate number of of, of uh, um, uh, women and children have been affected by the by the, the crisis. Um, and for too long, we've looked at, at women and girls, as you said, as being something. How do we deal with this issue rather than how do we um, uh, ensure the perspectives, voice, needs, issues of of, of women are front and centre in in responses? I mean, I think we. I think the the humanitarian community, I think, governments have got better at this, but it's coming off a very low base, and um, I think there's still a, a long way to go on this. Um, and I think this is part of this border issue around the compact uh, mentioned about about moving from sort of simply looking at at victims to looking at, um, at 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 people with 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 skills, experience, perspectives, voice, and that. And I think, you know. Um, Two things I would just say, say that I guess we are trying to look at this, you know, and, and 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 Minister Bishop has taken this as one of her very strong things that she's taken with the whole aid program, but also on the humanitarian yeah. stuff is the voice of women. She, when she travels, she always wants to have a meeting with women exclusively and to hear their perspectives and voices. I've uh, been part of those when she's done it when she's travelled to um, uh, the, the Pacific region following cyclones and disasters and, and hearing that voice and perspective, seeing it as well when traveling to the Middle East and elsewhere. Um, but the question then is how does that get translated in terms of the real perspective on the ground? I think one of them is this commitment around localization that was very strong in the World Humanitarian Summit. It's been an issue which we try to look at how do we take that forward. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it comes from the perspective of, you know, there's been this whole debate, what's localization Is it simply giving more money to local organisations? Well, that might be one part of it. But the broader part is actually how decision-making is occurring at the lowest level possible, and most particularly by affected communities. And to do that is, is, is easier said than done. It means re-looking really at how... We um, do assessments are carried out. It's relooking really at the way coordination mechanisms are established. It's relooking really at the way m um, and is carried out and 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 reporting and accountability sort of access. And a lot of it we need to really turn around from from where it's been. And it's it's a big cultural shift. And I I I, I would say that it's something which um, from the Australian side we don't have the answer, but we are very committed to looking at how we address this. I think some of the work Paul mentioned about the voices of uh, looking at ways and mechanisms that refugees have a much more centred voice, and women within that is critical. Um, but uh, you know, it's not—it's something which we're going to have to, you know, stick at, identify the positive wins, and keep momentum on it. If we're going to—if we're going to get get shift and change, it's not something that by simply fun- identifying a new funding model or a new sort of approach so that we're going to resolve this. It's really rethinking and understanding how we address and treat affected communities,
5: and particularly women.
2: David or Madeline, if you'd like to comment on this?
5: Uh, no, I just, th- I just think other than to say there's a, there's, a, there's a clear opportunity for us every year when we um, allocate places and construct places for our uh, refugee and humanitarian program, um, to really start to think uh, not only about, you know, I- if you like, uh, areas or diasporas of greatest need or specific cohorts, but breaking it down at this level and then obviously working on the appropriate settlement uh, services to support those people whose needs uh, may be very different based on uh, either gender, family composition, or country of origin.
2: Thanks.
3: Madeline? But if I could perhaps, very briefly, I'm. Martin. Mindful of a maxim that a refugee women's uh, organization uh, leader once talked to, told us, which was that there should be nothing about us without us. And I think that should really uh, uh, govern our thinking, not only with regards to the uh, way in which we need to ensure that refugees' views are reflected in the compact, but also women and girls who are a very significant proportion of every refugee situation that we deal with worldwide. Um, I mean, I think. It's, for us, and we take very seriously the provision in the comprehensive refugee framework, which uh, requires us to take account, and I quote, of the rights, to specific needs, contributions, and voices of women and girl refugees. And we actually are having discussions with various uh, groups and organizations now as to what that can actually mean in practice. Uh, what can we do to give effect to that, uh, going beyond just what's on the page? And I think also when we look at the various parts of the Global Compact on Refugees, the provisions that aim to identify practical measures to ensure that people can be protected from SGBV, survive the SGBV, can receive the support they need, that uh, facilities for meeting basic needs, whether that be health, education, or access to livelihoods, that these are all going to be things that can be made to work properly for women and girls, and not just for refugees in general because they specific what things they bring to all of the areas specific knowledge about what areas exist and how these to be made more accessible. And these, uh, very simply have to perform everything we do and everything we decide uh, ultimately to put into our programs and activities on the, I think perhaps um, I'd throw in one other element there as well, which is very important as regards the perspective and that also relates to community. Because that's another important part of the global compact on Refugees, of course, and perhaps in some way a new element for us compared to initiative in the past, that we need to listen to host communities and hear from them about ways in which refugee hosting can be sustainable and can be made beneficial for all concerned. And that goes for women representatives in host communities as well. Thank you.
2: Thank you. Other questions? have Our microphone runner here. Yes, please come on, yes.
9: You. Hi, Rebecca Barber from Oxfam. Um, I have a question about responsibility sharing, following up on Elizabeth's earlier question. We saw a very strong commitment in the New York Declaration to the principle of responsibility sharing, and um, for Oxfam, one of the, um, I guess, one of our key hopes for the Global Compact on Refugees is that we see something that takes this further than just reiterating the commitment to the principle of responsibility sharing and actually sets out what that looks like. Um, And, Madeline, you talked about the need for countries to step up and to increase resettlement opportunities. Um, And I'd just be really interested to hear, particularly from from UNHCR, but maybe others on the panel as well, as to what, what you think that could actually look like in the global compacts and specifically can we hope to see an actual mechanism for responsibility sharing? And if not, what, what do you think is the most that we could hope to see in the global compact?
2: Yeah, I think that's a question for Madeline. Okay.
3: Yes, thank you really very much for that. Because indeed, I, I said earlier, this in many ways is really a key challenge for us. You know, We have clear principles in international instruments that highlight the importance of international cooperation and responsibility sharing. But the question that has to be, of course, what does that uh, demand of states in practice? Um, And so we've voiced a very ambitious target, indeed, for resettlement, but part of that is about trying to push the boat out further and to have a real discussion about um, whether these states are ready to make good their uh, commitments to this principle by, by coming forward with significant numbers of places. It also uh, ends up we're seeking to encourage discussion on other ways in which we can find pathways to solutions. We talk about complementary ways through access to facilitated for refugees to uh, labour migration programmes, immigration programmes, and others should be part of that as well. Um, we are, as I said, trying to focus also on possibility of uh, standing mechanisms to ensure swift and flexible financial support. It's widely known to everyone here. I think that many refugee situations worldwide are drastically underfunded, and remains for much of the time during which people wait for assistance. Um, This has to change. It's not possible anymore to expect that host communities are just going to open their borders and let people sit for years and years on their territory without the sort of support they need to be able to address basic needs and to um, ensure that they can also look after the needs of host communities at the same time. Um, we are hoping that ways can be also to better harness uh, resources and thinking around development activities in that regard as well. Development funding focuses on much more long-term timeframes, humanitarian assistance in many cases. And so we think that if uh, ways can be found to properly ensure we can have Uh, transition, and in many cases, in fact, uh, simultaneous planning and implementing of developments and humanitarian programs to provide more resources, more effectively, is going to be part of that. Um, As regards other mechanisms, we're certainly looking at the question of how uh, we can ensure that um, beyond finances, beyond resettlement, other ways can be found to provide access to solutions, Um, and States are urging us to look at ways to take into account contributions that go beyond uh, those of finance and, and resettlement alone. And so we're, we're certainly looking at various ideas that, that might have been put forward in that regard. Um, states, of course, that do provide access to their territory really uh, are fulfilling their obligations in a crucial way and in a way that should inform thinking as well about better respect for existing international obligations in practice. And this has to be a crucial part also for us, in that the aims of New York don't be fulfilled. We know there's hesitation on the part of states about articulating new international obligations in these compacts. But for us, a crucial part of states also demonstrating their commitment to this undertaking is to provide good examples of better implementation, better respect for the existing that we have in states commitment taken on an the institutional instrument towards refugees
2: in practice. Thank you. Thanks, Madeline. And, Jamie, if maybe I could put you on the spot just a little bit and see, you know, what would Australia's position be vis-a-vis a concrete mechanism for responsibility sharing versus a general affirmation of the principle?
6: I mean, my, my feeling is the... on this is in terms of how you try and articulate um, more specific or solid commitments around responsibility sharing you, is you can move right down to sort of, as you said, motherhood statements around aspects or right. right through to really specific targets. My feeling is the more you head down that, the more you're gonna get into very contested debates and potentially undermine the ability to actually progress a more sort of. So my feeling is it's gotta be somewhere sort of in mm-hmm. the, the middle. I think you've gotta, as Madeline said, sort of be clear about that this has gotta be um, real, it's gotta be different and it's gotta be clear about um, uh, different states being held accountable for how they're mm-hmm. contributing. And my feeling is that there are aspects and targets which we can be talking about that Madeline's touched on that, that uh, you know, how how states, you know, beyond those who are hosting refugees, how the international community is practically and genuinely contributing to that. How we're we taking longer term approaches mm-hmm. to addressing those. How we're um, uh, talking about the issue earlier, ensuring that um the voice and perspectives of refugees and their their education and livelihood needs are being respected and understood and particularly for women. And so I think being clear on some of those areas, but not trying to get to the point of saying a certain percentage of money or a certain number of years of commitment, because I just I just don't think you you would okay. get there. The, the the final thing I'll say is I think is probably linked to what Paul said about the programme of action. I think one of the things, you know, coming from within government, that is often one of the most useful ways of holding people accountable is actually having a program of action and mm-hmm. com- countries being able to communicate back what they've actually achieved. I mean, the SDGs has got that. I think it's one of the things which it means that regularly across government we're having to talk about how have we addressed that, what have we contributed to, how, what's the right. what's that shift, in, and I think. That's one of the things we're trying to achieve with the with the compacts is a, a different and more holistic way of addressing the challenge. And if you're going to get that, it's not about just getting a, a strong compact. It's about how it becomes a living document over mm-hmm. the years um, mm-hmm. going forward. And I think that program of action thing, I think we would see merit in, in how that might be trying might be trying to be
5: developed. Okay,
2: David.
5: Uh, and, and just to extend that, I do think also we've seen um, a, a change in our environment whereby. Uh, the private sector has stepped up in ways we haven't seen before. Um, we have got some really great initiatives going globally at the moment that if we can leverage off the goodwill and the investment that is being made and we link that into sound government policy, all of a sudden you can see <coughs> a lot more opportunities coming. John Cameron was here before from Talent Beyond Boundaries. You know, they're doing great work um, in terms of the if you like, alternative pathway space of identifying um, refugees with skills that could immediately come in to make an economic contribution. The Centre for Global Development in London has done some really interesting work around um, funding or financing models uh, for refugee support programs. So I, I think we've seen an acceleration and a much better blending of the issue of funding, of the issue of sound policy, and how this now operates across borders in a way it probably hasn't um, before. We've tended to be more looking at government solutions you know, country of origin, country of transit, country of settlement. This is, this is quite an exciting time, I think, about what, what it offers uh, potentially. The compacts will be obviously a very, very important part of that and would be a very important grounding point for any futures, for future work. But I don't think we should lose the opportunity that regardless of how the compacts go ahead, the goodwill that's been created and the level of investment and engagement we are getting from uh, different sectors now needs to also be built on and taken to the next level.
2: Yes, please, Fiona.
10: Thank you. Thanks for a fascinating discussion. Um, I'd like to to, um, just focus for a minute on the global compact on migration. Two two questions for you. I'm curious, are you getting any pressure from business or chambers of commerce or any of those sorts of actors around um, pressure to reduce the friction in the migration process, I guess, Um, whether that's for skilled migration or or other sorts of labour mobility. So, are they engaging, would be my first question. My second question is, like you, I I always like the practical, implementable solutions. Um, I'd love to know people's ideas about what they are. I've been certainly looking for them. A couple of ideas stood out to me, just off the top of my head. You know, putting in place practical systems with financial institutions to reduce the cost of remittance transfers. Another example might be people are starting to talk about a global development visa. You know, what are these practical things that you see in the migration space that we can take forward?
5: Sure. Look, to go to your first question, um, we engage all the time. And obviously the, um, you know, chambers of commerce, business, etc., cetera, um, are looking at their own outcomes first. Um, so we, we always live in a world of tension of, you know, 457s um, and seasonal worker programs and, and all of those things. As I said, we have a managed system here um, that, that is quite mature. Um, the globalisation a- aspects are really starting to become much more challenging uh, around, I guess, how our traditional settings were able to manage uh, the movement of people, uh, in, particularly in the skilled space. Um, the issue of uh, lower skilled work will always be attention, um, and governments have to consider how they wish to participate in that. We know in Australia we are becoming more and more a service industry, less a manufacturing, Um, so are our kids being trained for those jobs, if not, where are the job vacancies, et cetera. That continuum of managing our our own labour market in the Australian context and then how we join up across the different spectrums I think will change over the coming years. Um, The compacts in in some ways, for Australia's benefit and the benefit of, of companies in Australia, really go to where are the gaps in the current system we have. As I said, being a mature system, we service today's need. The question becomes how do you service tomorrow's needs and is the compacts a mechanism to do that, particularly when it comes down to um, source countries, diasporas, etc., and how they may engage. So I think um, business hasn't engaged on the compacts per se more around current government policy uh, for migration into Australia. So I think that's uh, a gap. Uh, and, and one we can certainly, I think, uh, we would benefit from more discussion about uh, as we go forward. Uh, on the second the second question of, you know, practical implementable, um, really just to pick up my last statements, we're seeing more engagement now from the actors who have skin in the game with these issues. Um, from a government perspective, in terms of government policy, government will set uh, whatever they need to achieve better economic outcomes, better social policy outcomes uh, for Australia. But the issue of how we can contribute both through either what we are doing or what we have done in the past uh, in terms of those policy settings and practical outcomes. You know, there are a number of countries who could, if they just adopted a lot of things we did today, the global environment would be a lot better. But from the Australian context, it more comes down to um, uh, the grey space, if you like. I was talking to to someone before this issue of how do you how do you get programs that cover a broad spectrum that not only serve Australia's national interest, which will always be the decision of government but uh, can perhaps get into other areas of public policy that might have other benefits elsewhere. And that's, you know, uh, the discussions have very much been around um, alternative pathways. So how do, how do we embrace alternative pathways? This, the, the government of, of today has t- t- taken a step with the CSP. Um, that's probably not the end of it um, as, as we go forward. How do you then build on what we have learned there? What do we learn when that's been running for 12 months? around take-up rates, around risk, around, um, you know, benefit, and is that a stepping-off point for other things to be done? I think the compacts offer the opportunity to shore up the the abilities of government to explore those different options. From our perspective, I think it behooves us to put on the table what we think those opportunities could be, and that's hopefully what we'll be taking forward from Mexico into the negotiations next year.
2: OK, thank you. We have Andrew. Caller. Just wait for the microphone. It's coming.
11: Thank you. Just following on from David, uh, your comment uh, about the amount of goodwill that's building up, uh, particularly in the private sector, and recognising the comment in the New York Declaration about uh, uh, the role of private sector in refugee policy, uh, I would make the comment that the refugee debate in Australia has been toxic at times, and corporations tend to be very wary about getting involved in um, uh, situations that could be delicate politically. However, um, I've noticed in working with John Cameron that there is an enormous amount of goodwill and willingness on the part of major corporations to work in this area. And I wonder if the government and the department would consider a a formal consultation process in the same way that you have with NGOs, with the private sector, just to, in a sense, say, look, it's OK uh, to work and develop these areas. Um, mm. So, it, it, I think it would be a very helpful one, and if you would be prepared to consider it. That's one question, and I, I have a second one uh, uh, following up on what Jamie said, which is that it is a historic opportunity, as we've seen today, uh, both compacts. Uh, are we? Is the Australian government recommending that there is a process of continual renewal built into these compacts so that it will be um, something that the UN and, the st- and and all the member states agree to, um, to continue to monitor and review.
5: I'll answer your first one because it's really easy. Yes is the answer. Um, we, I think over the last 12 months have been building more informally. Um, so, you know, we'll have a dinner with, you know, very big business person, X, Y and Z, who wants to explore how they can contribute. Um, We can work with John on program design, et cetera. But I I think the the logical next step is to actually create a a forum that has a degree of formality about it, where we can sit, you know, Chatham House rules. Um, How do we go from uh, a willingness to spend a lot of money to support something to turn that into an actual outcome of resettled refugees? Because that's the gap at the moment. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, And this is the thing, the, how do you break the cycle that says we're happy to give them jobs, but then how do you, get, how do you go through that process of skill identification, well, we've sort of got the talent beyond boundaries and a few other things happening at the moment in that space, and then that translation is whose hand goes into whose pocket at what time private sector, individual, government, family, whoever, to make that a reality. And I think that's that's the hard part and that's we're sort of, we're creeping up to that at the moment, but if we can do something more formally, and I can speak to you separately outside this forum, about, um, you know, if, if CALO Centre would want to play a role in sort of kicking something off, we'd be, we'd be more than happy to, otherwise it'll be government calling another meeting and everyone comes to Canberra and we sit around and wax lyrical, so. Um, Andrew, just look. I think
6: a- a- absolutely. I think from our view, exactly what the mechanism is for monitoring or judging performance around the thing is probably going to be. I think mm-hmm. look through and, and you don't see. I know sort of looking at it, but I think we certainly think if it is going to be something that isn't just a, a statement, and then sort of we move on and continue to deal with the. Difficult and cardiac sort of crises that we have globally, you do need to have a mechanism where you are coming back and you're looking at what is what's been advanced, what's been achieved, and frankly, what hasn't. I mean, you know, it's one of these things where you know it is. It's about trying to have a level of transparency and honesty on yeah. things, and 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 all of us undoubtedly will make commitments that we'll struggle to meet. But if we don't have a way to sort of determine well, where are we at with it? Why hasn't this been able to tra- track and progress so effectively? Then I think you know it, you lose that that one-off opportunity to really keep the momentum. So I think um, uh, absolutely exactly what that's going to look like I think is what's going to be unfolding over the next six or twelve months. Just two other quick things on the remittances to flag that you know it, this is something which we see is really critical. Mm. With the the, the fact we've taken this on, particularly at the moment in response to sudden onset disasters where communities are trying to, and we've got the big banks to agree to know. Um, no uh, charges during transfers uh, during a six-week window of crises. And that was not easy to get, but it's, it's great that we've got that. But we are also looking at how we work with AUSTRAC and others to deal with this question around counter-terrorism legislation, which does make transfers difficult and at times costly, and how do we try and get data that can allow... Um, uh, communities to be able to confidently transfer funds in a much more efficient effective way. So I think there, there is certainly an awareness on that, a focus on it, the innovation exchange. The, the foreign minister is also looking at this, this this question fairly specifically. The other thing I just, David, really touched on the private sector which I think is a really important one that we ha- that has really been increasingly this, the compacts have, have invited yeah. Yeah. in. The World Humanitarian Summit really, I think, was you know, it was really impressive, the level of engagement from the business community and the private sector. But just a couple of concrete examples where it's moved forward is, obviously the whole shift to cash programming has been a huge shift and change. And that has been a very direct way that refugees, and often women, are getting Resources very directly in their hands, and then making decisions about how they can utilise that. Very different to the in the past, where you you had each agency providing you know food security or education or whatever else, shelter, or whatever it might. And I think that's a much more sort of. But, but the other one is education. I have to say, some of the, some of the um, uh, more business models coming out at the moment about mobile curriculum materials being provided to to te- to, to refugee. Uh, you know, many te- like in the Rohingya crisis at the moment, I've seen w- teachers. You know, Women, both men and men and women who have been teachers in, 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 in Myanmar, who are suddenly being displaced, still have the skills and resources. There's a huge amount of children, and we know one of the critical things of education is not just about imparting education, but providing safe environments for children, <coughs> is getting the curriculum's materials in their languages through uh, electronic mobile technologies that they can immediately start sort of being... And there's a lot of progress on that, The private sector is really offering a lot on that in terms of um, models that can deliver on it. And I think that's one example where I think, um, again with this more holistic approach on the compact, there's good and interesting ideas that are changing uh, the situation lives in a positive way now.
2: Thank you, and there's a question here. Uh, Eve, Lester, and then uh, Stephanie? Maybe we'll take those two together and then have a chance for a response. better. Thanks.
1: Um, I had a couple of questions and they actually relate to the Global Compact on Migration more than they do to the Global Compact on Refugees. Um, but um, but it's, it's about the interconnection of the two. And um, so I guess I guess it comes from my experience of talking about mixed migratory flows and so on and the need to always consider um refugees in the context of, of, um, of broader the broader migration context and, and and vice versa. My first question is is what is happening and I do realize there is some interconnection, but w- what is happening to ensure that the rights and interests of refugees and asylum seekers are factored into the process of the global com- uh, compact on migration because of course, Um, the global compact on migration is where the conversation is happening about visa systems, carrier sanctions, uh, uh, detention and so on and so forth and those uh, refugees and asylum seekers are amongst the most structurally vulnerable within that migration space. So that's my first question. The second question, because I think the conversation, certainly from my experience and back in the days of the global consultations, I think we were... It was a fairly clunky process of having refugees um, involved in the conversation, um, and I think it, seem, it seems certainly from what I've been hearing to have vastly improved. But I want to know about the global compact on migration and whether there's whether there's space being made to hear the voices of migrants, whether they are um, asylum seekers and refugees within the migration context or other structurally vulnerable migrants, Um, has there been any space created for those voices? Thanks.
2: Okay, two good questions, but let's take one from Stephanie, yes, and then give you a chance to respond. So questions on the complementarity between the two. Uh, Madeline, you might wanna jump in on that as well, how the two compacts relate, and then the question about space for migrant participation in the process.
0: Great, thanks. So, um, I'm Steph Cousins. I work for Talent Beyond Boundaries with John Cameron. Um, So, I feel compelled to channel him (laughs) into this discussion Uh, because one thing, um, you know, he says a lot and it's completely true is that Australia is really leading the way on the skilled um, pathways stuff as as embryonic as it is. um, Talent Beyond Boundaries has found it really, really hard to actually translate the goodwill and the policy interest and all of that from um, government and the corporate sector into actually getting people into jobs through skilled pathways that are additional to existing humanitarian um, streams. In fact, we haven't yet been able to place someone physically um, in a job in another country yet because of all of these barriers. Um, We're new, so that's okay, but uh, I guess my question is, how can we use the um, Global Compact on Refugees and the GCM to catalyse real political will to do what we need to do to actually cut through. Um, Because what we're talking about is really changing some of the fundamental tenets of um, of the way we do resettlement and creating a new pathway. And that's difficult because there's so many different players and stakeholders and power holders involved in that. Um, But what we really need is kind of a a radically new approach, I think, to, to cut through. Um, so I guess the question is can Australia be really pushing that um, through the stock take coming up through um, All of these international opportunities. Do you think Australia is in a position to do that um, and from UNHCR's and HGR's perspective? I'd be really interested to um, Hear your perspective um, as well on this issue of operationalizing the complementary pathways
2: Okay, thanks you want to jump in? Yeah, right? I'll, I'll jump in first Um, I
5: might answer that, uh, the the question just raised first. Um, Look, absolutely. I mean, we want to, um, because we've done a lot of the thinking and not. I think you've answered part of the question by talking about the complexity and the challenges, um, but because we have done a lot of the thinking and we've framed it in a way that we think is practical and achievable, um, we we will certainly be um, feeding that into the process. Now, I think the competing interests is the challenge, though. Um, What issues will get the greatest airtime? And then what will be the, how will those issues translate into actual commitments? Um, that's, we'll have to wait and see. But I can certainly give the commitment that we'll be, um, we will be prosecuting those arguments uh, uh, from the Australian perspective as highly beneficial and uh, wherever we can, trying to embed some of those commitments into the compacts themselves. So um, on, on that front, certainly. Um, I think the issue of the mixed migration flows I- is challenging because we... Uh, In answer to the question, are we hearing much about the refugee journey as part of those mixed migration in the uh, compact on migration, the answer is no, uh, I would say in the broad. Um, And I think primarily it is because we have been keeping the two separate lanes around the compact on refugees and the compact on um, the the broader movement of people. Um, I think the challenge is that cross fertilisation that means we don't run into those risks that I cited earlier around sort of blending the two into this you know, morass that becomes um, un- almost unnavigable. Um, but I certainly do think there's benefit there in looking at the management of mixed migration flows in the concept of, you know, if you like, the orderly movement of people through regular means uh, and controlled means versus mixed migration through irregular and uncontrolled means and how do you deal with those cohorts in that context. I think both, both compacts have to have very tight alignment to make sure we don't end up with a gap in the system.
2: Madeline,
3: do you want to comment on the complementarity between the two compacts? Yes, absolutely, it's a crucial issue and I'm very glad it's come up because I think we need to acknowledge indeed that there is scope for some very productive uh, interaction between the two, it's something. Where we need to work to ensure that we do have coherence, complementarity, and that the two are going to be mutually reinforcing. Um, Interlinkages arise between the two in part because of the very nature, of course, of the large movements that this entire process is, is seeking to focus on. Um, the reality is that refugees and migrants are often moving together along the same routes. They are facing similar challenges. They are exposed to some of the same risks of exploitation and rice violations. Um, and in many cases, of course, we may see people uh, arriving borders with needs need to be dealt in a similar ways parts of the competency refugee response framework raise issues that we hope will also be addressed in an appropriate way and in line with international standards in the refugee in the, in the migration passages around for example meeting basic needs identifying vulnerabilities and addressing them and there's some key elements around responses as well at the level of uh, of reception that also I think will likely lead to similar uh, considerations. At the same time, um, refugees and migrants are in a different situation. And I think you've really uh, touched on some key issues where we indeed see uh, practices that are not satisfactory yet in terms of uh, the way in which they're not ensuring sufficient respect for refugees rights. States have obligations towards refugees as regards to their treatment of borders, admission to territory and their treatment during the uh, refugee status determination process that we need through this uh, global compacts process to uh, address more effectively in practice. A major difference of course is indeed that refugees don't enjoy and can't claim the protection from their own countries. And so we need to make sure that the two instruments together including at the point at which refugees have not been identified and the reality is there's many countries in the world that don't um, have placed sufficient systems uh, for uh, determining if a person has a, an international protection need, that we need to be able to help states more effectively ensure they are acting consistently with non-profit law and that they are ensuring uh, respect for refugees rights in a more effective way. So we think... We're very glad that HCR has been named as a specific actor that is involved in the process of developing the Global Compact on Refugees. And we're seeking to ensure that um, these complementarities as well as these linkages are gonna be addressed in ways that are going to be mutually reinforcing. Um, uh, It's good to talk to you too, by the way, Eve. It's a long time since we uh, got together. if I could perhaps on the question of new, of, of uh, complementary pathways, and I emphasise we see these as complementary pathways because for us it's crucial that we're looking at this as something that is, in addition to resettlement, resettlement has a specific role, including particularly for people who um, are not able to find a solution where they are or who have specific vulnerabilities. But so whatever we're going to be doing on labour migration programs and opportunities for accessing labour migration and education, for example, has to be complementary for us to resettlement states so need to be exploring this in addition and not in place of resettlement quotas. But just to say, I think um, what we hope might happen um, in order to remove some of the, bar- the barriers that uh, Talent Beyond Boundaries is, is availing to is that we focus very much on some of the very practical and administrative requirements around labor migration programs. The truth is that in many countries of the world, refugees simply aren't eligible to apply the labour migration programs, whether that's because of the documentary requirements or because it's a requirement that you apply from your country of origin. Um, Fees are prohibitive, that one needs to be able to produce evidence of uh, professional experience or qualifications that may be very difficult to find. We would hope that states can really focus on the very nitty gritty of what there might be in their existing labour migration programs that could make it prohibitive for refugees to gain access to those. And if we can address some of these very plain, simple, practical administrative hurdles, we hope that this is going to simplify the pain in that regard. Um, They're simply not in the same position as uh, people who are applying for labor migration programs. Otherwise, we, we hope that this very practical focus is going to be part of what will help us. with states looking at their own programs and asking themselves the question about how they can be creative to address this and make this more viable in reality.
2: Thank you. Rafael, I wonder if we could turn to you and, and ask you to imagine a practical re- recommendation that comes out of these global compacts that you think would be beneficial.
4: I think that um, more work can be done. I mean, I, I think there are a lot of practical ideas, right? I mean, there, there have always been a lot of practical ideas. Um, and, uh, yeah, just like you need to figure out ways to actually implement them. But uh, more specifically, and from my own experience, I think there could be um, more partnerships between uh, government, states, and uh, in the industry, the private sector, especially universities. Um, so the way I came here was, was through a partnership between Macquarie University and CARA, the Council for At-Risk Academics, uh, through which I got a scholarship to come here, and then that allowed me to apply for the visa um, and then be here. and. If it wasn't for, for that partnership, that kind of partnership, I wouldn't be here. And the other thing to to, to actually realize is that um, I was in a unique position to apply for this for the for the visa. And I think more work can be done to between you know, states, universities, and the private sector to facilitate these, these bureaucratic issues, um, to allow more students to come here, increasing scholarships, and also coordinations and collaborations. The other thing is, is family reunion. I've been here for like two and a half years, and I'm really struggling to get my mom and sister there, although they're in a very vulnerable position in Turkey. And I think um, it's not only my issue, I think there are thousands and hundreds of thousands of people like me in this situation. But despite being here, despite um, fulfilling the requirements, I'm still facing a lot of issues with that. So I can't imagine how hard it must be for the others who are still stuck in Syria, Turkey, Jordan, Lebanon, who have no male support whatsoever. Um, And um, so you can't really imagine the magnitude. And I think, really, there are just some practical steps that we can, Mm -hmm. um, that the the states, and um, in collaboration with the private sector, can do, increasing some, like the refugee intake, uh, family reunion applications, things like that, that don't really require a lot of, research, a lot of, um, you know, meetings. Um, They're very simple, (laughs) it's really frustrating. (laughs)
2: Well, thank you very much, um, and, and thanks to all the panelists. I think it was good to have this more informal exchange with uh, the with, with audience, and I was reassured to hear from the Australian representatives to take forward this issue of looking at gender not just in terms of vulnerability, but agency. And good to hear about the establishment of a new forum with the private sector and your efforts at will expedite some of the processing around the movement of high-skilled people. I think that's that's terrific. So thanks to all of you, and thanks especially to Madeline for getting up so early and drinking your coffee with us.